Welcome to the second episode of That's One for the History Books. I'm Marty Cohn. My good friend, you Ryan and I are profiling Americans who made important contributions to our country, but who have not received the attention we think they deserve in our history books. Today, we are profiling Maxwell Rabb at the dawn of the civil rights movement. So you, are we traveling back to the early 1950s? Yeah, that's right, Marty. Maxwell Rabb was a key aide to President Eisenhower as he took office in January of 1953. He very quickly made himself the White House's go-to person on equal rights for African-Americans and other minorities. So what are some of Eisenhower administration's achievements in civil rights? Well, I'll start with the Civil Rights Acts of 1957 and 1960, the first civil rights legislation since Reconstruction, I also substantially integrated our nation's capital, which was a, a segregated Southern city on his inauguration day. He integrated DC uh, public recreational facilities, swimming pools, tennis courts and the like. He ordered uh, restaurants, the, most of which were white only to start serving black customers. And the local um, restaurant owners association reported that, that they all complied really without any objection. He also appointed um, 47 African-Americans to important positions, 27 of which had never been held by a black before. This included the first black undersecretary. And his administration made great progress in furthering the, the desegregation of the armed services uh, that had been mandated by President Truman, his predecessor in 1948. The Eisenhower administration focused on desegregating Southern ports on the schools for service members' children on military bases in the South. And remember, oh, and also uh, VA hospitals in the South. And remember, the majority of major military installations in the United States were and are in the South. Okay, so that, that's about Eisenhower, but what role did Maxwell Rabb play in these advances? Well, that's about the Eisenhower administration. And he was, a, in that administration, he was a behind the scenes organizer. He was Ike's emissary to civil rights activists and minority organizations. And he also played the role of communicator and enforcer within the cabinet departments. So Rab was dispatched to deal with Harlem, wait a minute, Harlem Congressman Adam Clayton Powell at an important juncture, wasn't he? Indeed, indeed. Powell was an African-American Democrat Congressman representing Harlem he was chairman of the House Education Committee. He's a powerful figure in Congress and a very forceful advocate for civil rights for African-Americans in his own right. He was working very closely with Sherman Adams, Ike's chief of staff, and with Maxwell Rabb as a three-person team focusing on integrating the armed services. But in spite of this, Powell became impatient with the pace of reform by the Eisenhower administration about six months into Ike's tenure. Powell perceived that there was resistance and foot dragging by the Navy, by the Department of uh, Health and uh, Education and Welfare, and by the Veterans Administration and others. So impatient, on June 4th, 1953, he addressed a highly confrontational letter to Eisenhower, lecturing him on the moral imperative of his living up to his civil rights commitments. And he released the letter to the Washington Star before delivering it to the White House. Wait, the president and his staff learned of the letter 
when they read it in the newspaper? Yeah, you can imagine how that went over in the White House. According to one G DC journalist at the time, the letter shocked the president and his vehement reaction shocked his staff. And then things started to happen in a hurry. So what was the content of the letter? Powell wrote, your official family, this is to President Eisenhower, your official family has completely undermined your stated position on integration. Now you tell a former five-star general that people under his command are being insubordinate. Well, that elicited exactly the reaction in, in Eisenhower that Powell was seeking. Powell was scolding the president of the United States in public, telling him, quote, the hour has arrived for you to decisively assert your integrity. You cannot continue to stand between two opposite moral poles. So Reb swung into action? Yes, yes. He went directly to Powell's Capitol Hill office, strode into the inner sanctum, uh, virtually pounded his fist on Powell's desk. As Powell describes the scene in his autobiography, Rab said, Adam, you made a big mistake. Things are in an uproar in the White House. Why didn't you get in touch with me first? Rab then pointed out to Powell that Powell was more popular in his home district than the Democratic Party was, and that Eisenhower was more popular in the country as a whole than the Republican Party was. So he said to Powell, think of what two men with those bases of public support could accomplish working together. You have blown those possibilities sky high. Uh, Rab closed his uh, tirade by saying, I'm very disappointed in you, Adam. So, all right, all right, Max, you win, Powell said. What do you want me to do? So, so Rab dictated the terms of a sort of peace agreement? In effect, yes. Uh, one journalist of the day said, Rab is a man with utterly inoffensive manner, and he proceeded as only such a person could to take Powell to task for what he had done. Rab told Powell that the president was going to respond to his confrontational letter in a very conciliatory tone, and Rab also pledged further cooperation for the administration. He told Powell that in return, he needed a positive response back from Powell in writing immediately. Rab assured Powell that the administration was indeed committed to progress on civil rights, but he added that the progress would take time and that nothing could be accomplished in an atmosphere of recrimination. So the exchange of letters took place right away with Powell writing back to Ike, characterizing Ike's letter, which I think Brad probably drafted, uh, characterizing Ike's letter as a Magna Carta for minorities and as a second emancipation proclamation. So the, so the rupture was healed and progress could begin anew. So was that the end of Maxwell Rab's involvement? Oh, no, just the beginning. Uh, one of Rab's first actions was to visit the Secretary of the Navy, Navy Robert Anderson. He told Anderson emphatically that Southern naval ports, starting with Norfolk, Virginia and Charleston, South Carolina, had to be desegregated per Eisenhower's directive. Anderson immediately summoned the Assistant Secretary of Secretary of the Navy, and the chief of the Navy's Office of Industrial Relations into his office. And he said, he's greeted him saying, gentlemen, we have a serious problem. He told them that racial segregation had to be eliminated everywhere, that federal funding was involved, which with the U.S. Navy is basically everywhere. In his autobiography, Adam Clayton Powell says that within just a few months, segregation was eliminated 
at every port from Norfolk to Houston. It's 21 installations employing 71,000 people of all races. So this was RAB's modus operandi, whether it was with the Secretary of the Navy, the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, which department was funding these segregated uh, schools on military bases, the vice admiral in charge of the Veterans Administration Hospital or anyone else. He worked privately, person to person, out of the limelight, which explains why, I think, he was highly effective, why he merits our attention, and why he receives scant coverage in the history books. So, so where do you come down on the question of how determined and how effective Dwight Eisenhower and his administration were regarding progress on civil rights for Black people and other people of color? Well, that's, that's a very controversial question. Uh, you're going to get a wildly conflicting answers to that from different scholars and historians. Let me just stick to some of the facts that are not in dispute and leave it to others to make the overall assessment of their significance. Uh, the integration of schools on Southern military bases and the integration of civilian and military work crews at Southern naval ports, those are facts that happened. The integration of the VA hospitals in the South is a fact. The integration of public and private facilities in DC is a fact. Uh, Eisenhower dispatched the US Army's 101st Airborne Division to Little Rock, Arkansas, to force integration of Central High School there for the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board of Education decision. And Maxwell Rabb had a central role in implementing all these, uh, all these actions. And that's a fact, I mean, he did that. So I'll offer you uh, one opinion. Um, this is from two editorials by the Washington Post at the time. The first one was on August 8th, 1954. Uh, the Post commented on an Eisenhower speech, perhaps the weakest of the four major areas of action cited by the president is equality of opportunity on which relatively little has been done. Rab showed that editorial to Eisenhower and said, Mr. President, someday they'll eat those words. Eisenhower said, we'll see. About 18 months later, the, the Post published an editorial under this headline, Discrimination on the Run. It read in part, some months back, in reviewing the initial performance of the Eisenhower administration, this paper observed that progress in racial discrimination in public and quasi-public facilities had been disappointing. We are now happy to acknowledge that it has become one of the strongest features of the Eisenhower administration. That's quite an endorsement. Was Rab active in areas besides civil rights? Yes. He applied his organizational abilities and his personal persuasiveness across all issues and all departments. I created a new position for him, secretary to the cabinet. Reflecting Ike's military background with vast command responsibilities in World War II, his cabinet meetings were very structured, disciplined, and they were programmed for rigorous follow through on decisions. Maxwell Rabb was an important cog in this elaborate wheel. What, what do you mean by that? Well, every Wednesday, Rabb prepared an agenda for the Friday cabinet meeting that week, which those meetings lasted about three hours. He would review the agenda with uh, the president and just according to what Ike said. He would then circulate the agenda among the cabinet officers and others who were going to be invited that week so that they could prepare themselves on the topics that concerned each one directly. He prepared briefing documents for the president on every issue so that Ike would walk into the meeting knowledgeable up to the minute on every topic. 
So everyone from the president on down entered the meetings knowing what was to be discussed and what questions were to be settled. Exactly. Furthermore, immediately after the uh, cabinet meeting, Rab would meet personally with the undersecretaries, ranking Pentagon officials, other senior government officials. He would advise them of the decisions that had been reached in the cabinet meeting that pertain to their areas of responsibility, discuss what specific actions they needed to take, and then he would follow through to make sure that the president's decisions were actualized. Okay, so, so I think we're seeing why you admire Rab and why most people have never heard of him. So that's Maxwell Rabb, the public servant. Tell us a little more about Maxwell Rabb, the man. Well, he was one of four children of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe who met and married in the United States. Rabb's father, Solomon, prospered as a wholesale food, food distributor. Rabb was born into this well-to-do family in 1910, raised in Boston. He graduated from Harvard College in three years, then Harvard Law School, matriculating in the early and mid-1930s when Harvard and most of the other elite universities had formal or informal quotas on Jews. He then practiced law for a few years. So how did he enter Republican politics? In 1937, he accepted a position as secretary to Senator Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. When Lodge left the Senate, Rabb held a similar position with his successor. Exempt from the draft, he nonetheless volunteered for the US Navy in World War II. In 1952, he joined his former boss Lodge in campaigning for Eisenhower to be the Republican nominee for president. He proved himself to be a skilled and adroit political operative on the campaign trail and then at the Republican National Convention, where, among other duties, he negotiated the terms of the vice presidential nomination with Richard Nixon. Did, did Eisenhower's leaving, leaving office mark the end of Rab's uh, participation in national affairs? Oh, no. While practicing law in New York City, he took on very delicate diplomatic missions for Presidents Nixon and Reagan, operating effectively behind the scenes in foreign capitals, just as he had in Washington. He died in 2002 at age 91 from a fall while walking to work at a Manhattan law firm. The Washington Post described him as, quote, a modest, unassuming man with a reputation for wit, long familiar with the corridors of power. I think that's a good place to end our discussion of this patriot and public servant extraordinaire. Thanks for listening to this edition of That's One for the History Books. The music, Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom, is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. I'm Marty Cohn with my co-host, you Ryan. Stay healthy.